Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is a very special Crime and yes. Stuff. In fact, I think for our for this episode, we should change our catchphrase to the podcast where when we say Portland, we're talking about Portland, Maine. Not yeah, Oregon. Portland, yeah. Maine. But today's episode is a recording of the Noir at the Bar author reading that was held in Portland on April 2nd at Bull Feeney's Pub. And about a dozen members of the Maine crime writers read from their work, including me. Yes, and we re- and this happens about twice a year, and it's great because it gets the authors out there. And gets you can people. sit at a nice, bar, have a nice drink, have a and nice relax. drink, and listen to different. It's a nice bar. Yeah, and they have all different. There's all different genres. <laughs> I always think of the movie genre <laughs> adaptation. Yes, what's, what's your, your genre? genre? Yeah. But anyway, uh, if you'd have to be a writer, I guess. Or, <laughs> or have seen the movie. Or, yeah, or just have seen the movie since I'm not Or a be in our heads. Yeah. But, but in any case, so people can go and sit there and listen for free to different writers read and get a taste of what their work is like. Yeah. And there's a huge variety, really interesting variety. There was. So we recorded it for this week's podcast, and I think it came out yeah. really good. Yeah, we just listened to some of it, because right now is the evening of the... It, it was only happened. a few hours ago, happened. so you may yeah. hear some background noise that there you would hear in a bar. Playing, yeah. There was some and some clinking of and plates. And also, there were I think there's some traffic noise. I remember during, during um, it was funny during Brendan Riley's because he's yes. talking about it was like traffic a motorcycle. and there was a motorcycle. Yeah, because uh, it was right on the in the old the old port of Portland, Maine. And, it, and if you're interested in the Maine crime writers, if you go to mainecrimewriters.com, we blog daily, and the there's information about all the different writers. And links yeah. to their websites, and you can find out more about us. Maine, as I say all the time, has a great, very rich mystery writing <laughs> community. Community. <laughs> Thank you. Tradition. It's that one Smittix I had. It just made me so. I had a gin and tonic. Oh, I thought you were drinking water. No. You had a diet? I thought you had a diet. I was really water. thirsty. So I got a Diet Coke, but I really wanted a drink, so I had a gin gin and tonic. tonic. Oh, see, I just thought that was just water with wine. I know, you do. But it's it's a good thing Mom didn't know, because she would have made some snarky remark about it. Ah, I fooled Mom. Mom, yep. That's why you should drink gin and tonics all the time. Dad had a glass of Pino, and Mom had water with a lemon in it. Wow. And Mom and Dad and I ate dinner after at, at Bolfini's? Yes, and we had some, uh, Dad and I had fish and chips. We had chocolate cake for dessert. Was their food good? It was. It's very good. I've never had a bad meal there. But since we don't, aren't at a level yet where we do advertising, that's just. That's just us just being nice. It. It's just us being And then nice. maybe if what, someone, someone from Bolfini's listens, I'll give us a free meal. Maybe. Next time. Or drinks. But can we be bought? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah, we, yes, can. we can. can. We can be bought. So I think we should just go right to the event. All right. And you can go on our website, Crime and Stuff Online. We'll put to a see link who to main the, crime writers. We'll put, and, and we'll put links to all the authors. To the ones who read, yes. yes. There was one or two who aren't members of main crime writers, and we'll put links to their the websites, websites as well. and stuff, yeah. So, enjoy. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to Noir at the Bar, the second time we've done this in Portland. You may or may not know that Noir at the Bar is actually an international phenomenon where crime writers get together and read their dark stuff in a place where people can sit and visit and eat and drink at the same time. So we're delighted to have you all here on this spring afternoon 
where it's now raining off the side of the building instead of snowing outside the window, one way or another. But we're so glad you're here, and we're so glad it's not snowing so that everybody can come. So we have a dozen people who will be reading today, which will be great. And we thank Wolfini uh, for making this space available to us, which is really a great space for this event. Uh, Wayne, who's over there in the corner, and Leah, who's tending bar, will be happy to get you food, get you drinks, keep you comfortable, keep you happy. So our format this afternoon is that writers are going to read for three minutes. And if they go over, there'll be a little bell that will keep them on track. What if they still go over? If they still go over, that's why you're sitting right up there, Mr. Millicent. He's the biggest guy in the room. Enforcers, right. We have enforcers all around. That's right. That's my job, by the way. Yes, right. So we will have an intermission after six uh, people read, and then uh, people can refresh uh, whatever they're eating or drinking, and then we'll come back and we'll do six more. Uh, yes, they have a minute or so. They can do a little. Nobody's going to time the little introduction. But once they start reading, you can tell Mr. Hayden is a little concerned here that he didn't time himself. He did not practice, so. Books, importantly, books are available for purchase here. Barbara Kelly over there at Kelly's Books to Go has uh, books. Writers will be happy to sign them. Writers will be happy to sign their books uh, as well, so just grab them afterwards. When people are reading, if you could, just give writers your attention as much as possible. That would be absolutely great. So our first reader today is going to be somebody who's actually not on the publicity list, so she falls into the category of being a special guest. Her name is Sandra Neely, and on the uh, 11th of March, she published uh, her most recent book that she's going to read from, and it's uh, really exciting to have her here. So come and take the... Nobody else signed up to be first. So, so Barbara, special guests go first. Yeah, we said. There you go. So. Okay. Thank you, Barbara. We need a guinea pig for number one. Um, so my uh, my recently published mystery thriller is called Deadly Trespass. It comes out in print in a few weeks. The publisher's Quill Book. Um, it's a mystery thriller, unpublished. It won a national award from the Mystery Writers of America and an award from the Women's Fiction Writers Association of America and, um, and several others. And then it was just brutal time to find a way to publish it, but here we go. The scene I'm going to read is, is the, uh, the moments where uh, the narrator, Cassandra Pat Conover, begins to suspect that in order to solve her friend's murder, the tree's been dropped on her friend, that she has to figure out if there are really wolves in Maine. It's at, a, it's at a place in the North Woods where everybody gathers because it's the only place to eat. So there's everybody there. There's kayakers. There's a Bible group. There's slumbermen. There's everybody who's gathering in this place. It's the only place to eat. And there are people there who want to kill the wolf. And there are people there who want to use the wolves as a strategy. And the murderer might be there or might not be there. But in any, any case, it's Tall Tales Night um, at Grant's Farm Inn. The narrator sitting at a table in the kitchen, organizing her fishing flies, trying to avoid everything. When Black Paws ripped the screen and fumbled at the back door, my arms flew up and flies flew everywhere. A wolf's head peered around the corner, lowered its muzzle and growled softly at me. I swallowed and pressed one hand on my leaping heart. Not a live wolf. A bent-over man wearing a skinned-out wolf cape, animal muzzle balanced on his head, tawny ruff of hair framing his forehead, 
grain brown, wolf shoulders draped his upper body, and leg skin swished down his thigh. With a throaty gurgle, Gordon lifted his head, and I gasped. His eyes were waxy yellow pupils cut by black slits. Contact lenses, a wolf man in wolf's clothing. Dragging his green duffel, he padded toward the dining room, snarled, and leaped to the stage. A woman in the front row screamed, like linebackers set to charge, loggers hunched low and aimed for the stage. After Gordon raised his paws and waved them back against the wall, people settled and hushed each other. I squatted on the kitchen sill, inches from the duffel bag and stage, and saw Ian balanced on a service card at the back of the room, adjusting lenses on his camera. Gordon whirled over the stage, gray tail streaming behind him like a furry windsock. I see you know me. Fearful eyes. Fear I will eat your children. Fear I will attack your husbands in the woods. Be calm. Fear rattlesnakes, bears, moose, and pet dogs. They kill thousands of your kind. I do not. Paws pressing the air before him, he stalked the rapt student audience and snatched a stuffed sheep from a pink backpack. Perhaps you fear for your livestock. On hooves, your property stalks towards us. So easy and so stupid. He bent low to brush wolf teeth across the toy. A girl giggled and stretched her hands toward Gordon. He patted her head and returned her sheep. Perhaps you fear for your game. Gordon's paws swiped a mounted deer head. Dust and hair floated down on the audience. You hunt the magnificent bucks, the fertile does, animals poised to breed their genes. We are not so stupid. Like automated fireflies, cameras and phones flashed. I dropped to the floor near students pressed up against the stage. Gordon and his wolf head prowled the room, two pairs of eyes seeking prey. Ah, yes, he snarled, pouncing on a patch of floor before the great nation timbermen. They hadn't moved all night. Dark glasses and mashed potatoes frozen in place. The forest. You own the dirt and trees, but you don't own me or the deer whose homes you destroy. Dragging a small table into the aisle, he crawled on it. Until four legs and panting, he was eye to eye with the men. He thrust claws inches from their chins, but neither man flinched. He raised his muscles, sniffed and spat on the floor. I smell the stink of your fear. Fear, my return, dooms. We're done? I'll finish the sentence. <laughs> fear, my return, dooms your lust to cut and cut and build and build. And in the back of the room, a deep voice yelled, Time's up, you crazy old fart. <laughs> That was wonderful. Thank you, Sandra. Lee Waite is next, who also has a brand new book out, and she's going to tell you about it. Salutations all. Sorry I missed this event last fall, but I'm going to make up for it. My next newest book is called Tightening the Threads. It is the fifth in the Mainland Needlepoint series, which is set in Maine and is a lot edgier than it sounds. Um, however, you do what the public wants. Anyway, um, in, when I was first writing the series, I needed to come up with a cast of characters who lived in Haven Harbor, Maine, and I wanted them to be a diverse group of people. Uh, the only thing they had in common was that they all did needlepoint, because they were going to work in custom needlepoint. And I wanted them to be, wanted to be an antique dealer, and many of you know I'm an, I was anyway an antique dealer. So that's fine. So I auctioned off a character named VoucherCon, the largest mystery conference there is in the country. And I, all I said was it could be a man, it could be a woman. I was still planning things out. All I wanted was someone who was an antique dealer on the coast of Maine. And when I went to find out who had won naming rights, someone said, Sarah, over in the corner, she won your auction. She's all excited. 
I went over and I met Sarah Bird, who was an Australian young woman with white hair with pink and blue streaks in it. And I fell in love with her as a character. I invented her, of course, in my books. She is my Facebook friend, so I know she's now past her board. She is now a lawyer in Australia. She's a mystery reader. And one thing that I never, she's a major character in the series, but I have never explained how this Australian young woman ended up as an antique dealer on the coast of Maine. And that's what my most recent book does. It explains where Sarah came from. So what I'm going to read today is a prequel to Tightening the Threads. It tells a little bit about what happened before the series started. And it brings Sarah on her journey because Sarah is on a quest and it has brought her to Maine. You'll forgive me if I do not do this in an Australian accent, but this is in Sarah's voice. <laughs> a high, dark concrete wall separated the ancient brick building from the busy street on the edge of London. Perhaps once the nursing home had been a hospital. Perhaps the fields and flowers had surrounded it. I'd like to think that. But today the neighborhood was run down, and those in the streets looked as though they too were destined for the building designated indigent home on a plaque next to the creaking gate. My home in Australia had been small but bright and open, and our little town was surrounded by grasslands. What would my life have been if my father hadn't been taken from here? Would I have grown up in these dreary streets? I'd come so far, but what would I find behind that wall in that building? I glanced down at the address I'd been given, hoping I was mistaken. This couldn't be where my 90-year-old grandmother was living but the address was correct. I couldn't turn back. I walked through the open gate and up the stone steps to the wide paneled doors and pushed one open. The hall inside was dark, covered with old photographs and plaques. Faded drapes covered the four tall windows. I longed to tear down the drapes and wash the windows and let what light there was on this dismal day inside these walls. May I help you? The gray-haired woman behind the reception desk looked as dour as the walls. I'm here to see Serena Byrne. I'm her granddaughter. What had my great-grandmother daughter, grandmother been thinking when she named her little girl Serena 90 years ago in another time and world? Whatever it was, it hadn't guaranteed a good life for her child, although at 90, my grandmother had survived more than most, more than any should have to. The woman looked through a file box of names, nothing computerized here. Ms. Barron is in Ward 37, up the staircase to the third floor to your left. How old was this building? How many feet had worn down the stairs I climbed so they were lower in the middle than on the sides? How many people had lived here and died here? On the third floor, I explained who I was visiting to a nurse at a wide nurse's station. The air smelled musty, a mixture of urine and detergent and porridge. No other nurses were in sight, but in the background, I heard the low murmur of voices like a swarm of bees descending on a field of clover. I don't remember seeing you before, she said. She checked a list taped to the whitewashed plaster wall behind her desk. I don't believe Ms. Byrne has ever had a visitor. Her paper said she had no relatives. I'm her granddaughter, I said, Sarah Byrne. She doesn't know about me. The woman looked at me a bit sideways. I see. Well, Ms. Byrne is not well, you know. I hope you won't do anything to upset her. At her age, she doesn't need any undue excitement. I understand, I said, but I've come a long way. Australia, the woman asked. I couldn't hide my accent, right then, but yes. <laughs> Come with me then. Your grandmother doesn't have much time left, and she may not understand who you are. Someday she's not sure who she is herself. I'd waited so long to meet this woman, maybe too long. She'd been told her son died of measles 70 years ago. No doubt she'd believed that. 
She wouldn't be expecting to meet a granddaughter born around the world from London. I swallowed deeply and followed the nurse down the long corridor to Ward 37. Very nice, Louise. Always good to have a prequel when you know a character. You like to know their, their history. Maureen Milliken is next. Reading. Come on up. I just want to say, too, that we're recording this for a podcast, My Sister and I Do, Crime and Stuff, which is a weekly podcast. I have some magnets. That Oh, that's my debit card. But I do have some magnets <laughs> if anybody wants to, want, wants to remember the name. And I'm going to try to keep my intro for this a little short in case I go 11 or 12 seconds over. This is from my latest book that I'm writing, the third in the Bernie O'Day Mystery Series. The setup is that the police chief, Pete, who's in the first two books, is out for a several days hike in the wilderness. He um, falls down an eroding embankment, and his leg is impaled on an a iron rod from an old fire tower that had collapsed. And that's where we come in. The lack of blood surprised him. Just a trickle from where the rod, dark and ugly, protruded from the pale flesh, but it didn't fool him. He knew where his femoral artery was. Any wrong move, any clumsy lurch could be fatal. Fatal. The word sat there. He lay back, looking up at the sky. Blue, 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 beyond the green of the trees. So many different shades of green against the blue sky. Had he ever noticed that before? When he was a teenager, he'd read the scene in War and Peace over and over where Andre, wounded, lies on the battlefield staring at the sky. So captivated that when his hero Napoleon looms over him, he doesn't care. Now here Pete was, more than 200 years later, staring at the same bottomless, impossibly blue sky. Bernie called it high definition. The shock was taking over, his mind drifting. He knew this as well as he knew where his femoral artery was. The pain was a giant pulse, dark red, pounding with his heart. But he was beyond caring. The blue of the sky was blinding, mixing with the pain. He closed his eyes, waiting for the shock to win, but all he saw was Bernie. She wouldn't believe he'd give in any more than she'd give in herself. He could almost hear her, incredulous, his own little Napoleon. Lie there and wait to die? Hell no. If you're going to die, make it a fight. He'd failed her in so many ways, but this was one thing he could do for her. He opened his eyes, forced himself to think. What about the guy who was trapped by a boulder in the desert canyon and freed himself by cutting off his arm? Pete tried to remember how he'd done it. It didn't really matter. An arm wasn't a leg. Even with a tourniquet, cutting through his thigh would kill him. And if it didn't by some miracle, he'd have to get through, probably crawling, dragging a useless leg behind him, trying not to bleed to death, miles of bushwhack and boulder falls, scrabble and impassable underbrush. His leg, pale, clammy, and trembling, looked like someone else's leg. Would it be that hard to cut into someone else's leg? He shifted and tugged at his backpack, twisted and wedged beneath his wet back, fumbling for the side pocket while trying not to move his leg or making the pack shift. He worked the zipper down, his fingers trembling, bloated, nearly worthless, as he felt for the knife. He was stupidly giddy at the first touch of cold metal before he realized it was the whistle. He gripped it, the edges cutting into his palm. Bernie had been so sure of its power to save him, but here it was so small in his hand and of no use at all. Sorrow, sudden, worse than the pain, made him want to never let go. Let the shock, the pain, and in the end, the elements do their job. But he opened his hand, dropped it, reached farther, and found the knife, just able to stretch his fingers around the leather sheath. 
He pulled it out of the pack and laid it on his stomach as he rearranged himself, the muscles in his leg clenching as he tried to keep it still. The knife's weight comforted him as he watched it rise and fall on his stomach. Once he took it out of its sheath, touched the blade to his useless leg, there was no turning back. He hoped it would be quick, that he wouldn't have time to regret it or think too much about what he was leaving behind. At least this death wouldn't be as pathetic as being found pinned to the ground like fate's joke, like he had waited for death the way Lydia Manzo had. The guy who cut his arm off had to break his arm bones because his knife wouldn't cut them. There was no way to break his femur. Maybe the metal rod had already done it for him. The pain made it hard to tell. It didn't really matter. He'd bleed to death before he got that far, tourniquet or no tourniquet. But he'd make one anyway. Useless, but assigned to Bernie, because that's who this final fight was for, that he'd gone down thinking he'd survive. He slid the knife out of its sheath. In two quick motions, he cut the belly belt from his knapsack. He'd do it that fast when he cut his leg. He wouldn't think about it, just cut. He wondered if his skin would feel like the nylon straps, make the same soft sound. He put the knife down on his stomach again. It's rise and fall faster, shakier than a minute before. He pulled himself up as much to as much of a sitting position as he could, ignoring the sharp bite of the broken rib as he leaned forward and wrapped a piece of strap around his thigh. Progress. This is the second book in my uh, Flint Canine Search and Rescue series. It takes place in Maine. In uh, this book, the premise is that there is a dog sledding expedition for at-risk teens around Newry, and they go missing. So uh, this particular scene is actually this group of teens. In the scene, we've got Megan, who's the instructor. Violet and Evie are both teen students in the course and Jewel is a sled dog who's just been injured. So we're going right into the action. <laughs> Grab Jewel, Megan shouted when her last attempt to reach Heather failed. We need to move. She can't pull the sled, Evie protested. Maybe the dog hadn't needed stitches, but she still shouldn't be on that paw. It had barely stopped bleeding. I'll reconfigure the dogs so we just, so we just have one in lead, Megan said, assessing the situation on the fly. That should balance things out enough for them to work all right. Megan was already doing so as she spoke, then left the dogs and, without a word of explanation, started tossing their stowed gear and food out of the sled and into the snow. What the hell are you doing? Evie demanded. Get in, Megan said. She waved toward Evie and Jewel. If we're going to move fast, we need to be lighter, and we can't keep Jewel any other way. But our stuff, Violet began. She'd been so quiet, Evie had almost forgotten she was there. How are we supposed to finish the week with no supplies? Megan didn't answer. She told Evie that as far as the instructor was concerned, the trip was done. Whatever had happened, they wouldn't be hitting the trail again. You just want me to hang on to the dog? Evie asked. You'll be fine, Megan said. Get in the sled with her and hold tight to her collar. Five minutes after the emergency call had been cut off, the dogs were harnessed. Evie and Jewel were stowed in the canvas hold. Evie's arms around the dog's warm chest, one hand wrapped around the collar. Megan took her place at the back of the sled, Violet in position ahead of her. Ready, Megan shouted. Go. 
Jewel lunged forward in Evie's arms as though she still meant to pull the sled along with the other dogs, whether she was attached or not. Evie held on tight, fear building in her chest as they gained speed on their way back down the trail. A heavy, wet snow began to fall, coating Evie and the dog as she held on for everything she was worth. They'd been going for a good 45 minutes when suddenly, up ahead, Evie saw a shadow move among the trees. A skier? It was a remote trail, and you didn't often see people alone out here. Another shadow drifted to the right of Evie's line of sight. Megan stepped hard on the drag brake, and the team slowed. Evie was so focused on figuring out what the hell she was seeing, she forgot about hanging on to Jewel. This time, when the dog lunged, she broke free. Shit, Evie shouted. Jewel practically flew out of the sled, clearing the sides and remaining airborne for another three or four feet before she hit the ground, running. At the same time, a crack broke through the cold air, like a hammer to ice. A sound Evie had heard a thousand times back home, but never out here. A gunshot. Evie's first thought was of Jewel and the other dogs. But Jewel kept going in the same direction she'd started in, without so much as pausing. The rest of the team, startled by the noise, picked up speed. Evie looked behind her, toward Violet and Megan. Violet clung desperately to the grab bar, trying to get some control. Megan, however, was nowhere in sight. Terror blossomed in Evie's chest. The edges of her vision blurred as realization sank in. Behind them, in a circle of darkening snow, Megan lay still. Completely out of control now, Evie, Violet, and the dogs barreled on. Next is Vaughn Hardiker, who drove all the way down from the county. When I uh, saw that we were doing noir at the bar, the first thing I thought was, what have you written that's noir? <laughs> and I thought back to when I was about that high, and I was reading magazines like Black Mask, reading Raymond Chandler, and it always started off either with the detective going to the scene of the crime or somebody coming to their office. So the book I'm going to read from is my current one. It's called uh, The Black Orchid, which is a play off the case that I kind of patterned it after. Uh, many of you may remember about 70 years ago, a young lady named Elizabeth Short <coughs> was murdered out in California. They called her the Black Dahlia, and it has never been solved. There was a young woman standing in the threshold of Ed Trainer's office. At first, Trainer thought she looked as timid as a gun-shy retriever, but then he realized she was debating whether or not she should come in. It was August, and business was slow, and he'd been enjoying a quiet Friday morning at his desk, sitting with his feet propped up on its corner and reading a crime paperback. He'd gotten through several pages before even noticing the woman, and when he finally had become aware of her presence, he thought to himself, real observant. If I was her, I'd walk away. Now he dropped his feet to the floor, stood up, and studied her. The short, royal blue skirt she wore made her look more like she should be leading cheers for her college football team than standing in the doorway of a private investigator's office. Her appearance was neat, a look that Trainer thought many young women today dis disdained or seemed to. Her brown hair fell to her shoulders in soft waves. She had the darkest eyes he'd ever seen, almost obsidian. 
The mercury was supposed to push past the 90 degree mark, but one would never know it to look at it. She looked and more importantly smelled as fresh as if she'd just stepped out of the shower. He thought that maybe she stood in his office door hoping to sell him candy to support her school yearbook or athletic department. Can I help you, he asked. Are you, she glanced at the lettering on the door, Mr. Edward Trainer. He took out his wallet and looked at his license. This official document from the great state of New Hampshire says I am, although you'd never know it from the picture. Call me Ed. Edward sounds too stuffy. Her face reddened. Sometimes Trainer's sophomoric sense of humor left people cold. He realized that they needed to know each other better before he could be his usual flippant self. Suddenly, he felt foolish, almost ashamed of his behavior. He threw the novel on his desk and stood up. I'm sorry. Sometimes, usually when I'm alone too long, I get smart mouth. He circled the desk and offered her a chair. Have a seat, Miss Hollis. Deborah Hollis. Please call me Deb. Okay, Deb it is. He waited until she was seated, her bag demurely placed on her lap and both legs clamped tightly together. He dropped into his chair and swiveled it around to face her. So, Deb, what brings you to my office? I'm told you're a private eye. The best there is in New Hampshire. I believe you're the only one in the state. At least the only one listed in the phone book. He chuckled and thought, no one's putting anything past her. He decided to stop the smart mouth attitude and get serious. That term is a bit dated. These days we're called detectives or private security consultants. What you call me depends on what you pay me to do. I need you to find someone. That's great. Thank you, Vaughn. E.J. Crescendo is next. I'm E.J. Vicenda, and I have a series out called The New Mafia Trilogy, which is about organized crime, kind of in my comfort zone. Um, but I'm reading something different tonight. I don't know if you've heard about Crime Wave. Uh, there was a contest going where Ted Garrison provided a prompt, and you wrote a 500-word story, and you submitted it. So I was all excited. I'm like, I'm going to do this. You know, flash fiction is kind of where I, I got started. And I wrote the story, and then kind of I can't submit it because I work for Maine State Media. I wasn't eligible. So I'm like, oh, well, I still am going to read it because, you know, why not? And it's, um, it's called Killer Surprise. So the very first sentence is the prompt that Tess Garrison has provided. He stepped inside, shook the snow from his jacket, and realized that everyone in the room was staring at him. They weren't supposed to be there. His wife had planned to spend the night at her sister's, having arranged to have a birthday dinner in the old port the following night, giving him time alone to celebrate his own special way. Instead, his closest friends and families were crowded. Instead, his closest friends and family members were crowded into the living room. This was just one more thing that had gone wrong that evening. They yelled surprise and flicked on the lights when he opened the front door. Surprise indeed. His wife dropped her glass, and he watched the free fall until crystal cracked upon impact. Red wine splattered across the carpet, resembling bloodstains, matching those on his jacket and face. His latest kill had been messier than usual and fought harder than anticipated, despite doubling the sedative. A collective gasp broke the silence, followed by confused concern. Are you hurt? Were you in an accident? 
so much blood. Someone call 911. Before he could step in and control the situation, his wife's nosy friend, Stacy, was on her phone. John, whose blood is this? His wife's whisper broke through the agitation buzzing around his head. Agitation at his well-thought clowns deteriorated in front of him. There was nowhere to run. He was surrounded, and as flashing lights illuminated the snow-covered front lawn, he knew he was caught. He couldn't say he hit a deer because his BMW SUV parked in the driveway didn't have a single dent. So he didn't say anything. When the ENT wiped blood from his face, the defensive wounds became visible. Long, deep scratches were etched in his left cheek. This is when he sensed a change in the crowd around him. Suspicion hung heavy in the air. This is when he went from victim to suspect. The police may have collected every bit of evidence possible, DNA, his clothes, his computer, and cell phone, and they'll pour through everything, but they'll never find the body. He grins and winks at the female officer who is again attempting to break his silence and get him to confess, confess to any crime. They know he's guilty of something, but without a body, a witness, or a victim to press assault charges, they can't hold him for much longer. John remains silent. The answers they seek are his secrets, and he'll take them to the grave. He turns away from the officer's intense stare and looks at the clock ticking away on the wall above the door. Once his attorney arrives, John will be released. The urge to kill is already growing, like early hunger pains that get worse the longer he goes without eating. He'll have to wait and let things settle down, smooth things over with his wife, or just walk away. But the next time, he'll be better prepared. Next time, there won't be any more surprises. Well, that was a great first six. I need to say, a big hand for everybody who We're going to take a break for 10 minutes or so, uh, but before we do, I do want to give a little uh, shout out to Crime Wave, which is coming up uh, in three weekends from now. And it's over at the university, and you can get information about it from many of us who are reading here today. I can tell you about how to come. It is a conference for writers, but also for readers. And there's so many interesting things happening both on Friday night when Tess Gerritsen is being honored and giving a Lifetime Main Achievement Award, and also through the day uh, on Saturday. So uh, if anybody's interested in hearing more about it, please let us know. It's not too late to sign up. And it is a absolutely wonderful, great time uh, of a conference. So, uh, and very affordable too. So, there you go. Thanks. So, about 10 minutes, we'll start all again. All right, so we're back. We've got six more readers, and I'll be the first one, and then there'll be five behind me. So, my name again is Brenda Buchanan. I'm going to be reading this afternoon from Quick Pivot, which is my first Joe Gale mystery. And uh, it was published by Karina Press. And you won't find it, uh, or any of the other two books in the series, on Barbara's Table because it's digital only. But you can find it online anywhere that you buy ebooks. So to set the scene, when an old mill is being converted to condos in a town called Riverside that's just west of Portland, a body is found bricked into a crawl space in the basement of this old mill. Joe Gale, who's my newspaper reporter protagonist, was there when the body was found. And in this scene, he's gone back to the scene with a guy named Nate, who owns the mill, uh, right after the police have released the scene. The hallway lights in the Sakharapa Mill's basement seemed dimmer on, than on the day Desmond's dead body was found. A steady drip plinked in the distance. We turned on our flashlights, and Nate led the way to the gap in the bricks 
that marked the place where George Desmond had been entombed. See the difference in color? Nate shone his light against the bricks. These over here have a lot of grime on them. He ran his finger along the surface of the wall, showing me how it picked up greasy soot. A pool of yellow crime-seeding tape lay on the floor, no longer needed to keep prying eyes and contaminating hands away from the place Desmond's bones had rested for four and a half decades. Nate rubbed a different finger against the brick next to the hole. It came away almost clean. I crouched and shone my beam behind the breech wall, leaning in for a long look. Another brick wall, perpendicular to the corridor, was six feet from where I knelt. There's a newish wall to the north, I said, bright red bricks. The plans don't show a wall in that location. Nick came over and stuck his head through the gap. What the hell? I swung my light to the left and saw another perpendicular brick wall near enough to touch. Like the one on the north side of the hole, the bricks were red. Whoever dumped Desmond's body back here built a crypt, I said. I'm going in. I crab walked through the hole and stood inside the burial place between the parallel brick walls. The air felt different, cooler, damper, grittier. The forensic autopsy indicated Desmond had been killed elsewhere, but I couldn't shake the feeling he'd been alive when he was entombed. Willing myself past a moment of claustrophobia, I began to examine my surroundings. I paced it off eight feet, eight and a half, north to south. With my left palm flat against the west wall, I reached back toward the hallway. My right elbow hit the bricks. I was wishing I'd brought a tape to measure the actual distance when I heard a muffled noise. What the hell is that? Nate's voice sounded farther away than the spot where I'd left him. Must be my photographer, I said. I told her to wail on the door when she got here. I almost crawled back out into the hallway when I heard him jog away to let her in, but shook away the heebie-jeebies. Again pointing my flashlight at the floor, I examined the granite. Maybe my eyes were playing tricks on me, but it appeared to be a shade or two darker in the area where I guessed Desmond's remains had been for all those years. Kneeling to take a closer look, I heard a scuffling noise behind me to the right. When I swung the flash around, I spotlighted a fat Norway rat. It looked at me for several seconds, eyes glittering, before scrabbling away to a hole in the south wall. A lesson from my mentor came to mind. There's never just one rat. <laughs> out on Barbara's table is called Solo Act. It's a story of uh, Elder Darrow, who's an alcoholic who buys a bar in Boston, hoping that it's going to cure him. What I'm going to read is, uh, is the very beginning of the prequel to Solo Act, which is called In Solo Time. Um, and uh, we're pretty sure we're going to get this published sometime this year. Uh, looks like in the fall. So, somebody's the morning after at the Esposito was always worse than the night before, regardless of whether I'd been drinking. The night before it ended without further incident, at least inside the bar, but it looked as if something had been going on outside. I stood in the cold wind on Mercy Street and stared at the steel-clad front door. 
The lip protecting the latch was bent over, as if someone had tried to crowbar it open. The same someone must have busted a knuckle, because dried brown blood crusted over the top of the handle. The morning after bar smelled flat and stale and failed. It breathed a miasma of grease and beer spillage and nervous sweat. And though it was illegal to smoke in public anymore, the walls reeked of stale tobacco, as if exhaling more of their toxic history every night. I lit a cigarette and walked across the floor, my soul sticking slightly. The earthy overtones of the air told me Jackie hadn't bothered cleaning the toilets again. Third night running. It occurred to me not for the first time that I'd been stupid to hire someone I'd both drunk with and slept with. I flicked the switch in the kitchen. One of the fluorescents came halfway lit and started to flicker. Back out front, the fecal smell increased as if the ventilation was pushing it around. I hope the pipes hadn't backed up. I didn't have anything to spare for new plumbing. The lights glowed a burnt yellow behind the bar. I drew on the cigarette. The stage was in shadow, though the microphone stands glinted in the dark. Down on the floor, a shoeless foot and part of a leg in pale slacks stuck out of the shadows. I sighed and flicked ashes into the sink. Before I caught on, one of the neighborhood homeless used to hide out in the men's room right before closing then used the Esposito as a private hotel suite for the night. It was also Jackie's job to make sure the restrooms were empty before I locked up. All right, buddy, I stubbed out the cigarette. Rise and shine. You're going to have to take it elsewhere. Walking toward the stage, I looked for empties, trash, ashtrays. My previous night camper had left a hell of a mess. But nothing seemed out of place. I climbed the narrow stairs at the side of the stage, then stopped so fast my shoes squeaked. Turned the stage spots on. Timmy McGuire lay under the blue-tinged lights like an urban diorama. Man in murder, circa 20th century. Halfway up his ribcage on the heart side, a bone handle protruded from his black silk shirt. Blood dulled the fabric's sheen in a pool around the wound and sopped down into the front of his pants, as if he'd spilled a glass of thick red wine in his lap. His facial muscles were slack, his mouth hanging open as if he were singing a high note. I leaped down off the stage and ran for the phone, knocking one of the chairs off a table. Bile backed up in my throat, and I was sure I was about to puke, not because of death, which I had known in other places, but out of fear for what this one meant. The Esposito had been my island of stability as I tried to dry out, but it was not going to stay stable or isolated for long. 911 dispatch, what is your emergency? You did. Next, we have Bruce Coffin. This is kind of pointless for me. Um, I actually write a cozy series instead of Portland Maine. <laughs> for those of you that don't get it, I can explain further. There were actually two, cha two scenes that I wanted to read today that I had thought about from the uh, forthcoming book. Uh, this is the second of the John Byron Mystery Series. Uh, the title of that novel will be uh, Beneath the Depths, and it comes out in August. And my wife uh, actually heard me practicing them, and I was informed that there were two problems with the scenes I had picked. One was that I, I'm not good, apparently, at a thick Somali accent. <laughs> so we, we got rid of that scene. And then the other one was that... You're welcome. There are, <laughs> 
were far too many f bombs apparently in the scene I was going to the other scene I was going to read. And if you know me, that's so weird. Um, but you're only allowed a limited number of those in a novel that are like exclamation points. You know the procedure? Right. I was going to say. So we uh, we we totally discounted those. And while I was shoveling the driveway, she picked a scene for me. So we're going to experience this together for the first time. <laughs> Sunrise was still an hour away. Portland's Casco Bay was heavily fogged in, a condition the locals referred to as in the soup. The official start of summer was still three weeks away, and although the air temperature had begun its gradual seasonal warming, the Atlantic Ocean, a chilly 49 degrees, had not. Maine native and Peaks Islander Earl Nesbitt was checking his traps without stern man Billy for the second time in the past four weeks. Billy liked to drink, and when he drank, he liked to fight. The lobsterman's only companion on this morning was his chocolate lab, Otis. Nesbitt's boat, the Dorian Gray, was a blue and white fiberglass duffy. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I, I couldn't. Help it. Artistic license. It was a uh, fiberglass duffy lobster conversion. Don't count that time against me. With a small sleeper berth in the bow where his AWOL stern man often slept. At 48 feet in length, the gray was hard enough to navigate through the rocky shallows of Hussey Sound when Billy was with him. Nesbitt was grateful for the calm seas as he steered the rumbling hulk through the mist. Otis stood on his hind legs, resting his front paws up on the side rail, while monitoring the passing buoys with great interest. Hussey Sound is the ocean channel which divides Peaks Island from the neighboring and aptly named Long Island. With nearly 40 years of fishing the waters of Casco Bay under his belt, Nesbitt had developed an uncanny knack for knowing precisely where the lobsters were best. When he made the decision to move his traps, many, of the, many among the elder crustacean hunters were savvy enough to follow his lead. This morning he was working near Whaleback in Josiah's Cove. Whaleback, named for the distinctive shape of its shoreline, comprised part of Peaks Island's eastern shore. He pulled the gray alongside one of the buoys with the precision of a driving instructor demonstrating parallel parking. Each lobsterman's buoy were easily identifiable by a unique color scheme, registered with the state of Maine. Nesbitt's were painted brown with a double yellow band. He hooked it and pulled it into the boat. Threading the nylon rope into an electric pulley, he raised the pot from the bottom some 20 feet below. The trap broke the ocean's surface, revealing three ensnared blackish-green creatures. He measured each tossing the two undersized lobsters back into the water while the keeper went into the live well. He replaced the bait with a fresh piece and then, to the delight of several dozen screaming gulls, tossed the rotting carrion over the side. After restoring the trap and buoy to their former locations, he returned to the helm, spun the wheel, and throttled the gray's engine up. He steered toward the next buoy, one of 300 he would check today. By 6 o'clock, Nesbitt had already pulled and replaced more than three dozen traps. The gray was idling just off the point between Spire and Wharf Coves. The fog was beginning to burn off. Nesbitt was hoisting another when the winch snagged. Son of a bitch. Stiffer than the F-bomb. <laughs> Nesbitt quickly shut down the electric motor before it burned out. He removed the rope from the pulley and leaned over the side, muscling the trap up by hand. Otis barked. With his front paws up on the sideboard rail, he looked over the side into the water. His tail wagged excitedly. What you think, boy? Otis barked again. Jesus, Nesbitt said, straining against the weight of it. Either I've just caught the biggest, Maine's biggest lobster or a fucking log. Ooh, there was one in there. <laughs> Otis vocalized his agreement. The burly old mariner continued to struggle with the rope, pulling hand over hand, one foot at a time, until something large began to materialize. 
He squinted into the murky depths, caught face down on top of his trap. Wrapped in seaweed was the body of a clothed man. What kind of Christly mess is this? He continued tugging until the body was just below the surface. Hoping to keep the gulls at bay, he left it there and tied the rope off to one of the gray's rusty cleats. Standing upright, he tipped his cap back and scratched his bald head. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, what do you know about that? Oh, shit, guess we won't be getting done early today after all. Thank you, Bruce. Brendan Riley's next. I will be reading this in a mixture of an Australian and a Somali accent. <laughs> uh, actually, my one goal in writing is to kill more people in my books than Chris does. <laughs> so in his, in his most recent book, there was a major terrorist attack on the West Coast. So in the book that I'm going to be reading from, which is my one that I'm working on right now, there are two. <laughs> in this book. It's called The Letter of Last Resort. Very quickly, the background for this. This is the prologue that you're going to get at the very beginning of the book. The hero is a guy named Jack Murphy. And Jack has been in a lifelong battle with this terrorist named Khalid. It began in 1998 when Jack was eight. And his parents were stationed in Nairobi, Kenya. And Khalid, working for Osama bin Laden, organized the destructive bombing of the American Embassy in Tanzania. Very quickly, I'll get on to the story here, but so Jack then it goes to live with his uncle, who it turns out is the world's, one of the world's best uh, art criminals, stealing art, trains Jack to be his successor until Jack discovers that the art theft that they're doing is funding the same terrorist organization that killed his parents, which then sends him off to the CIA they send him like a missile into the Middle East until he eventually finds himself in an interrogation room in Cairo with the son of Khalid, where he does some bad things. He leaves to start his own life, a new life, but of course, with all of our books, we can't let anyone be happy. <laughs> his past comes back to claim him. So the, epi the, uh, the, prologue, sorry, the prologue is where we, we meet Jack. In 1998, Nairobi, Kenya, August 7th. At 43 Runda Estates, in an upscale residential neighborhood outside Nairobi's center, in an isolated home surrounded by high walls and a gated driveway, Mushim Musa Matwali Atwa finished running the wire to a detonator switch installed beneath the dashboard of the Toyota, Toyota Dina, a beige commercial truck selected because it was nondescript and ubiquitous. No one would stop or even notice the truck until it was too late. Atwa gazed lovingly at the wooden crates stored in the truck's enclosed bed. Inside those crates, 2,000 pounds of explosives were packed. Three days before, Ali Saleh and Mohammed Rashid Daud al-Awali, Bruce, say that, had driven past the American embassy and decided it would be best to explode the bomb as close as possible to the embassy's rear instead of attacking the front and trying to drive it into the underground garage. Another group was poised to attack the American embassy in Tanzania. Twin terrorist attacks timed to the second. Atwa closed his eyes and held a delicious thought between his teeth. All was ready. In mere hours, the world would have a new name to fear, Osama bin Laden. 
Four hours later, Jack Murphy passed with his parents outside the Apundi House next to the U.S. Embassy. Students studying at the Secretarial College inside the building spilled onto the sidewalk, chattering noisily over the ever-present honk and roar of traffic. The city bus slid past, followed by a Toyota Dyna truck. But Jack's attention was drawn to the jersey his father had just pulled from his briefcase. Jack slipped the iconic red Manchester United shirt over his head and grinned at his parents. David Beckham. He whispered the words like a prayer, his eyes shining as his father knelt before him, smoothing the front of the jersey. That's the number 10. He gave up the number 10 for the seven. Jack nodded, too overcome to speak. His mother wiped the sweat from his forehead and kissed him. Happy birthday, kiddo. It's not every day my favorite guy turns eight. When your father's posting finishes here at the embassy, we'll head to England. And before going back to the States, maybe we'll stop at Old Trafford to see Beckham in person. Jack lunged at his parents, squeezing his arms around their neck while his father's deep bassoon rumbled in his ear. Love you, kiddo. As Jack hung on, his father suddenly twisted away, a worried expression on his face. Did you hear that? It sounded like gunfire. An instant later, the world ripped apart as a thunderous hurricane of air and fire engulfed them. The Ufundi house shattered, glass and metal ripping outwards. A city bus burst into flames, followed by a torrent of fury and anguish, spinning Jack and his parents into the air. He grabbed for them, but they were gone. Everything was dark and crackling, spinning and screaming. He slammed into something hard and collapsed onto the street. He never felt pain like this. Something was eating him alive. He tried to move, tried to open his eyes, but couldn't. He could hear his skin crackling. His jersey, his new birthday jersey, was burning. He was burning. This whole world is burning. Jim Heyman, come on up. Hi, what I'd like to read to you today is uh, from the fifth McCabe Savage thriller, which will be coming out on May 9th both in paperback and as an e-book. And uh, rather than try to summarize what it's about, I'll just read the copy that will be on the fly leaf of the book. And then I will read you from the prologue. On a freezing December night, Hannah Ride Bell leaps to her death from an old railway bridge into the freezing waters of the river below. Yet the real cause of death was trauma suffered 12 years earlier when Hannah was plucked from a crowd of freshman girls at a college fraternity party, drugged, and then viciously assaulted by six members of the college football team. Those responsible have never faced or feared justice until now. A month after Hannah's death, Joshua Thorne, former Holden College quarterback, and now a Wall Street millionaire, is found murdered, his body bound to a bed and brutally mutilated. When a second attacker dies under mysterious circumstances, detectives Mike McCabe and Maggie Savage know they must find the killer before more of Hannah's attackers are executed. But they soon realize these murders may not be simple acts of revenge, but something far more sinister. And I'll read a bit from the prologue where Hannah is at the party. She's drugged with Rufinol's, known to Rufinol's friends as Rupees. Anna tried to puzzle out how Josh knew Evan would be up there. She felt him take her hand and pull. She stumbled along until they came to a wide set of stairs. 
The music, loud again, was pounding in her head. Hannah looked up. She felt like she couldn't even walk, let alone climb what looked like an endless flight of stairs. She mumbled something, but what came out didn't make sense. Didn't even sound like real words. Come on, let's go. Josh started pulling her up the stairs. No, pulling wasn't the right word. Dragging was more like it. A couple of times she felt her knees banging against the treads, but Josh kept pulling. She tried and failed to shake off the fuzziness in her head as she stumbled up after him. A bunch of kids were on the landing at the top. She wanted to call out for help, but her voice didn't seem to work, and most of them were too involved in making out to notice her anyway. Two couples lay sprawled on either end of a beat-up couch. Others stood squashed against each other along the wall and in the corners. Each so focused on the other's face and body, there was no way they'd ever notice anything or anyone else. Hannah tried to pull away from Josh. Somewhere deep down, she was sure she didn't want to be going where he was pulling her. But somehow she couldn't summon the energy to resist. She looked desperately down the long hall. No sign of Evan or anyone else she knew, not anywhere. Josh opened the door to a dimly lit room and pushed her inside. Hannah tripped over something and slipped to the floor. Someone's hands pulled her to her feet. She fought to keep her eyelids open, fought to understand what was going on. With her head drooping down, all she could see were a sea of legs in front of her. She looked up and saw a bunch of guys smiling down at her. The one in front happened to be totally naked. But before her mind could make sense of that, she heard the click of the door being locked behind her. Last, but never least, Chris Holmes. <laughs> never least, Chris Holmes. So, uh, I'm the author of the Michael Hendricks thrillers, uh, The Killing Kind and Red Right Hand, as well as the Collector Trilogy. I'm actually going to be reading from the Collector Trilogy today, uh, from my very first novel, actually. It's a common bit of advice given to writers, that you should write what you know. I've always hated that advice. That said, this reading is about a writer doing a reading at a pub. <laughs> Light spilled through the window of the pub as I watched them, casting patches of yellow across the darkened street, but conveying no warmth. It had been three rounds now, maybe four, and Gardner had yet to pay for a drink. His reading tonight went well, and they were falling over themselves to share a pint with Britain's greatest living author. I fished another dunghill from the pack, lighting it with the dwindling ember of the one that preceded it. The ground around me was littered with cigarette butts. I'd been standing there a while. But the moon was high overhead and the night was getting on. I wouldn't have to wait much longer. Finally, midnight rolled around, and the last straggling patrons were ushered into the chill spring air, the barkeep locking up behind them. Gardner headed up St. Giles, listing slightly. I took a last long drag off my cigarette and then pitched it into the street, falling in behind him. I kept some distance between us, in case he looked back. He didn't. A few blocks later, he ducked into an alley to take a leak. 
I gave him a minute and then followed. He was leaning one-handed against a wall, pissing behind a dumpster. The toast of Oxford, or so I'd been told. From here it was hard to see. He turned toward me, zipping up his fly. When he spotted me, he started and damn near tipped over. Who the bloody hell are you, he asked. What are you doing here? I stepped toward him. My hand found his chest and reached inside. He knew then who I was, what I was doing there. Sorry, I told him. It's nothing personal. I yanked it free then, that light, that life. Gray-black and swirling, it cast long shadows across the alley, and its song rang bittersweet in my ears. Of course, if anyone had happened by, they'd have seen nothing, heard nothing. No, this show was just for me. For Gardner, too, perhaps, though even then I couldn't be sure. Gardner's body crumpled to the ground, whimpering as it hit the pavement. I paid it no mind. It was already dead or near enough. Sometimes it takes a minute for the meat to get the message. I removed from my pocket a bit of worn cloth and a small length of twine, wrapping my prize in the former and binding it tight with the latter. The whole package was scarcely larger than an acorn. I slipped it into my inside coat pocket and then set off down the street, whistling quietly to myself as I disappeared into the night. Sorry, it's nothing personal. I had no idea how many times I've uttered that phrase that I had no idea how many bodies I'd left crumpled and inanimate in my wake. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. The truth is, there have been thousands. Some, like Gardner, are so damn surprised they never even see it coming. Some spend their lives in fear of the moment and catch my scent a mile away. They beg, they plead, they scream. In the end, it doesn't matter. I always get what I came for. And I remember each and every one of them, every face, every name. I collect souls, the souls of the damned, to be precise. That was a great collection of readings. Don't you think, everybody? I think so. Thank you again, everybody, for coming. And, uh, and to the Bohemies, uh, the folks who run this place, and the staff in particular, Wayne. Yay! And yeah, I'm bar. There's still time to eat and drink and buy books from Barbara. Um, pardon? And a book does make a lovely gift. Easter is right around the corner. A late St. Patrick's Day gift. Any number of things, many occasions. And again, the Crime Wave. If you're interested in hearing more and meeting more main crime writers, you've got a wonderful opportunity coming up in three weekends. And again, ask any of us for details about how to sign up. You can go to the Main Writers and Publishers uh, Alliance uh, website. Uh, is one place where you can get all the information you need. And thank you very much. And writers, I think we need to have a group pick. So maybe one in the back wall where it's a little less bright. Okay, great. Thank you, everybody. So I thought our recommendations this week could be, instead of just recommending somebody, which I guess we are going to, who was the last main author book that you read? The last book by a main author. Yes. Not necessarily a mystery. No, any book. Besides my own. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want to be that loser that recommends your own book. No, I don't. Okay. 
But I do read it because I'm writing. Yes, I'm I've read saying. it too. Well, I haven't I, read this one yet. Do though. you want me to start? If you want to. You haven't read which one? The one I'm writing? Yes, now? you haven't given me anything it's not, yet. Because it's not in a, in a place where anybody can read I understand it. that, but I'm and just that saying... In that little part you heard, that's kind of first drafty, yes. and it may change. Although that's a big part of the book, so I don't think what happens there is going to change no, much. No, that's good. Okay, so anyways, what was the... Well, the last book I read by a main author was actually by my favorite main author. And one of your favorite authors. And one of my Probably. favorite authors, Richard Russo. Ah, yeah. I read his new book, Everybody's Fool. I have not read that he yet. He and Eleanor Littman are the two people whose books I, even though I have no money, buy in hardcover. Oh, I love their both of them, yes. And he's one of those writers who's so good, it's hard to learn from his writing because you're caught up so much in the story. Yes. That you, with bad writing, or even average writing, lots of times I'm like, okay, I see what they're doing. I'm pu- yeah. picking it apart. But with yeah. him, you're just in the story. Everybody's Fool is, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Nobody's Fool. Yeah, because they and made a movie of it. With Paul Newman. And Melanie who's, Griffith. Can we just say, in Bruce Willis, but can we just say Paul Newman is one of the most handsome men He was handsome through his whole life. He was. So this is years later. The Paul Newman character, unlike Paul Newman, is still alive, Sully. And a lot of it is from the point of view of um, the police chief who's a very sympathetic character. And it's I won't even talk about the plot or what happens, but it's just a very entertaining, well-written, character-driven book that's both poignant and funny at the same time, beautifully written by Richard Russo, I know people, if people aren't really familiar with him, probably the one they're most familiar with is Empire Falls. Yeah. And that's not even really one of my favorites. I felt like that what okay. happens at the end is gratuitous with the school yeah, yeah, shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was good, though. But I mean, he even has, at his worst, it's still excellent. You know? And all his books, Bridge of Size is a big favorite of mine. I liked the one... Oh, shoot. The Risk Pool is oh, I love like the my favorite. Yes. He has a couple... He he was a teacher at Colby College. Yeah, the one where the guy's a professor. Yes. I like that one. What that was one that was called? Funny. Oh. I, had a, I had a goose on the cover because he grabs a goose by the neck in the book. So, yeah, Straight Man. I love that book. And remember the scene where he was climbing around in the ceiling? Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> he wet his pants. Yes. And one thing about his books is his characters are very human. Yes. And they have a lot of human mm-hmm. foibles, but they're not. One thing I, like, I was never a big fan of John Updike because Ugh. his male characters were all like, I know I'm a jerk, oh, blah, 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 but I can't help it. And it was like a big excuse for being a jerk. Yeah. Like, the only thing I ever think I really liked by John Updike was the piece he wrote about Ted Williams' final at nah, bat. I that was Kid Bids Hubadoo. But, <laughs> oh, sorry. But um, Richard Russo's characters are... Always very human, and he really captures small northeastern towns, the way people are, the way people talk, and the way they interact. That old Cape Magic, I also like. That was a recent one. It came out a few years ago. I didn't read that one. It was based on his, his relationship with his mother. He, oh, he had written a memoir right. around the same time elsewhere that was an yes. actual memoir, and both of those were really good, too. I've got to read more of his So books. I don't think there's a Richard Russo book I don't recommend. I've never read The Horse Child and other stories because it's short stories. And I just no, no, I'm I worried about short in. stories. You know what? I do like them when I, I read them. I me too. But, but I, I just don't gravitate I want, towards them. I want to get into a book yeah. and just be drawn in. And I love it when authors I really like write really long books, 
And his aren't really long for you. And then no. Eleanor Lippman's are really short, but yeah. I like her. But she's not from Maine. So I'm not going to talk about her. But we love you, Eleanor. We I do. love her books. I just finished Turpentine Lane. Oh, I need to. I need to which is really one. good. The thing about hers is there's never a really big plot. And hers well, are she, just, like Richard Rousseau, is very good. Uh, um, her characters are very realistic. And she has taught me a lot about writing dialogue. Um, her, yes. They're not, they're well filled out characters. Like, they're, they're not... Even if they they are quirky kind, not I hate that word quirky. They're idiosyncratic sometimes, but they're not weird. Right. Like but, where you would be like, yeah, yeah, right. And there was one I think the character it, it never said it, but I think the character actually hit Asperger's. I can't remember. And it, that was the one with the woman who was the doctor. I can't remember, and since we're not recommending her, yeah, I don't we'll talk about her later. You but can recommend her later. I also want to say about Richard Russo before we move on to you. His daughter, Emily, and another guy who was a bookseller at Sherman's, which is a, <laughs> Sherman's, which <laughs> is a chain in Maine that actually sells my books. Nice. And it's hard to get books into stores when you have a very small publisher in Sherman's has Solomon every month I get a little check sometimes it's about 17 bucks or something hey. but people are buying them they've opened a bookstore here in Portland print colon a bookstore yes, I think I it drove by it earlier and, today and it's and I think it's On great because Portland Street. already has Longfellow's books. It has Sherman's. Yes. We also have Nonesuch Books in South Portland. Which and, I love. And Bull Moose, which was a music store, now sells books as well. Yes, they so do. So it's nice to have all those local booksellers. And I want to give a big shout out to Portland, and that's Portland, Maine, <laughs> and its surrounding area. You know, Portland, Oregon was named after Portland, Maine. I know. A lot of places out there were. Just saying. Just saying that there's that the the people, the residents like reading enough. I know this sounds stupid and lame, but they like reading enough that they can support this many yes. bookstores. You know, people say, oh, bookstores are dying, bookstores are dying. But here in Maine, we have well, some very vibrant... My theory about bookstores is I think the internet ruined the big chains because... If you were looking for a specific book and you want to just run in and grab it, you would go into Borders or, or B. Dalton's or one of those places. Grab the book. Gra- and they would probably have it because they had tons of... So if there's something specific you were looking for, and that's what you would do. And then when Amazon came along, it's like, good, I don't have to run into the bookstore. I can just go online and buy it online. But when you want to go hang out and browse and look and see what's there, and that's when a right. little, nice, cozy bookstore that has other... like I love browsing. such books is a nice place because they've got gifts and stuff too and they've got nice gifts and it reminds me when we were growing up we both worked at um, Mr. Paperback in Augusta. Our mom was the manager. Our mom was the man. Nepotism. But the guy that ran it Bob Foss. Yeah. He he didn't care about nepotism. His no, kids, he didn't. His, his kids, kids worked there, too. But there were, at one time, 13 Mr. Paperbacks in Maine. Yeah. And they were in the, kind of the northern part of Maine, and then in the southern part of Maine was Bookland. Yeah. And they kind of had a gentleman's agreement to keep out of each other's territory. territory. And they were very similar, nice little bookstores. And, and that's what none such books is Right, now, and that's the way I feel. There's a difference between... there. Sometimes I'm looking for a very specific book, and, I, and I'm not going to sit here and crap on Amazon because yeah. if it weren't for Amazon, authors like me with very small publishers would not be selling any books. No, I, I mean, they so, have their place in, in but, small books. But when stores, I'm looking for a very specific yeah. one, and I know exactly what I want, yes. I go on Amazon, or if I want a book, say, about, for instance, Ted Bundy, and I only yeah. say that because I went to the library looking for a stranger <laughs> beside me the other day. 
And I can Google it on Amazon and find it. But there is nothing like, and I used to love doing this at Borders when it was still open because yeah. it was so big, going to a bookstore. Or Barnes & Noble. There's just browsing the yeah. aisles, seeing what's new, seeing yeah. what the new releases are, yeah. seeing what's on display, the ones with coffee shops getting them. Yeah. I think there's a place, and as you know, I have this fantasy of opening a little bookstore with a cafe and comfy yes. chairs and but that's for another day but i do want to tell just before you go i know i keep saying this tears well, i have one mr paperback confession all right remember when we used to work there when we were teenagers yes and but we didn't work there at the exact same time no we didn't i think and this was probably when i was a college student but i used to work when i was in college when i was home from college and stuff and sundays in the summer in augusta maine were dead. Everybody was at the coast. I think yes. there's maybe a few more tourists And we there. still go noon to six on Sundays. Right. So I think there's some more tourists and stuff in Augusta these days, but huh. this was, would have been the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, Mr. Paperback was open noon from six, and I remember frequently in the summer being on that noon to six shift, which I don't mind because I'd sit there and read a book. And there was one day... There were literally no customers, and there was that huge parking lot. It yeah. was at a little strip mall with a Shaw's And now there's a bunch of stuff store. in the parking lot, like there's an Applebee's or yeah, something. But there it were, used to be just this giant parking lot that sloped down because we but, used to skateboard there. But they had built a Burger King way yeah. over Kitty Corner on the parking yes. lot across, and I think it had just recently opened, and I was friggin' hungry. Because no, I used to go visit you, and you make was me go get so French fries. I so hungry. And so this one Sunday, there was nobody in the store, nobody in the parking lot. I sprinted across. I didn't lock the store oh. or anything. I sprinted across the parking lot to go to Burger King, and I figured, you know, I'd, I could keep an eye on the store all the way across and see if any customers and got some stuff and sprinted back. And I've, I don't think I've ever told anybody that story. Wow. I was gone for maybe 10 minutes. You're lucky. You know who used to and show up. And Mom was our boss. So. But you know who used to show up unexpectedly was Bob. The boss. Bob the big Fox. boss. Well, I'm probably I not in Augusta that much, but I worked in the Bangor. I worked in Augusta, and then I worked in the one in the airport in Bangor, and I worked in the one on Hogan Road in Bangor. And he would show up frequently. And that day, I wasn't thinking of that. What I was thinking of is if I see a car pull up or a customer go in, I'll hustle right on yeah. back there. Yeah. But I wasn't thinking the boss would show up, and I don't yeah, think he, he would have been in the car anyway. So that it's is exciting. So that's my babbling on for several minutes. Okay, so the last book I read, and I just finished it actually. By a main author. The books I have on my bedside table are ones I got at Crime Bake that last fall. They had, you know, so I saw all the authors that. And I'm finally getting to I always to buy a books. ton of books at Crime Bake. Uh, New England Crime Bake, I guess it's called. It's always like, what, the first weekend of November? Veterans. I think we talked about it it's anyway. It's Veterans Weekend. And we... Uh, uh, I always go way over my book budget. Yeah, and they always have... They have a lot of authors there and books and stuff. So I saw this... Edith Maxwell, the author for that, on several panels. She's not from Maine, though, so... But I just finished... The, I'm, She's I'm, from I'm, Massachusetts. I'm reading that book now, and I really like it. It's called Delivering the Truth. It takes place in, like, 1888. And so it's a Quaker... Um, she's a Quaker, and she's a midwife. And she's nosy. So that's all you need to know. Because you have to be, too. So that's one... But the one that I just finished, a Maine author, Barb Ross, who you know, Mo. Yes. And I don't usually read cozies, although I don't mind them. I just... It's not... I don't know. I guess I think they're too short, honestly. A lot of them tend to be on the shorter, and I like long books. And cozies for people that don't read Misty's are the uh, books kind of more gentle, would you say? How would yeah, you in fact, there's some, there's some unwritten rules. Most of the violence is off. 
the page. Yeah. Lots of times they're in small towns. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like murder she wrote type I, that's things. what i was gonna that's say I, was I find them a little caricaturish in some ways People sometimes joke that there's always a cat there's always a cat there was the a cat the, uh, yes i think women tend to like them maybe or they're aimed towards women i don't normally pick them up but when i do read them i always like them so they're called the clambake series and this one called fogged in julia the protagonist has come back i guess in in previous books this is the fourth book in the series, by the way. She had come back to Busman's Harbor, Harbor, Busman's Harbor, which kind of... It makes me think of Busman's Honeymoon, the Lord Peter Whimsey book. Oh, maybe she's... In England, a Busman's Honeymoon is when you take a holiday or a honeymoon doing the same thing you do for work. Oh, okay. Whatever. Um, so back to me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It kind of seems like it's supposed to be kind of like Booth Bay Harbor, which is a touristy, cute... A uh, little. Uh, it's where all the people from away like to go to yes. see real Maine. So this young woman has come back. She's some kind of high-profile job in New York, and she's come back to help her family uh, with her clam bake restaurant or whatever the hell they. It's have. a diner kind of thing. No, she owns a di- She owns a restaurant with her boyfriend. Yes, that's different than her family. Um, so she, some guy turns up dead in her cooler. In the in the walk-in, she, I know you want me to, but when I was a waitress at Deering Ice Cream, I always used to wonder whenever I went in the walk-in refrigerator if there'd be a body in there. Why would you even think that? I always think that, like when I go into an outhouse, like at a state park, oh. I always wonder if there's going to be a body in there. I see, I don't think that way. But that's why I'm not a mystery writer. I guess that's why I'm not fucking insane. I <laughs> no, she the the plot is that she and her boyfriend have like a restaurant bar. But during the day, it's a diner that this old guy runs. And he decided in the winter they should have somewhere for people to go who live there year-round. And get drunk. Apparently. And so they open. So get that's how Alan's that... Alan's Coffee Brandy. And it does have recipes in it, which I don't really care yeah, about. Yeah, a lot of times cozies do have things like yeah, recipes, recipes or knitting, or knitting patterns, stuff. Yeah. But I'll say, even though, as I said, I'm not a fan of cozies, her writing is very good. I really enjoyed the book, and I honestly couldn't put it down. I wanted to see how it ended. So I would recommend Barbara Ross and her Clambake series, and I'll probably read the other ones from the beginning. I'm sure some of our readers like cozies. I mean, some of our listeners like cozies. Yeah. Somebody actually asked me on one of my um, on my Facebook groups I'm in if anyone knew any good cozies, so I told them Barbara you Ross. You know, and that's one great thing about Maine's writers and mystery writers is that there's something for everybody. She writes cozies. Lee Waite writes cozies as well as historical novels. Then you have, like, Brendan Riley writes thrillers. And Chris Holmes. Chris Holmes writes, I guess there are thrillers when you have, like, you know, somebody, a hitman who kills other hitmen, <laughs> which is what Chris's are. And Gail Lynn. Dick or Cass. Are they espionage? I haven't read it. Hers are espionage. Yeah. Dick Cass writes more noir. They're jazz-based mysteries, yeah. basically. And his... And Bruce Coffin writes police procedurals. And so does Kate Flora, right? Yes, Kate Flora also does true crime. Yes, yes. Like Finding as, Amy. As a matter of fact, I've only read I've, Death Dealer. Yes, I've read her true. Her and she um, has that one about I want to. I haven't read it yet about uh, the doggy, the police dogs. Death Dealer. Oh, is that Death Dealer? Yeah, they go up to help solve a crime in New Brunswick. 
That sounds yeah. I've got to and then that. she has one she wrote with Roger Gay, the main. That's the one Warren, I was thinking of, which is the, really the good. The Roger Gay one because right. I think um, I'm on a good man and a dog. There's also like Jen Blood, who's going to be on this podcast sometime in the coming months, talking about the Bennington promises, Triangle. Promises, promises. Writes more traditional type mysteries like I do, and her latest series involves a dog searcher, a canine, you know, woman with a tracking dog, oh, tracking yes. dog business. So there's all sorts of, and I probably left people out, Brendan Buchanan, whose books are available digitally, like me, has a journalism background. Yes, and hers are more your type of, same type of mystery. I don't know what, uh, now what are yours? And Von Hardiker, who drove all the way down from Arusta County today ah. to be, writes, his are more hard-boiled. And are yours, but yours aren't really hard-boiled, Mine are, no, they're not. In fact... Yours there are, are people who think mine are cozies, but they're not. They're not really cozies. They're, they're traditional amateur sleuths. Because I would say kind of yours are kind of in the same class to me as um, like a Nevada oh. bar type. They're kind of gritty, but they're not hard-boiled. For instance, we got some reaction today to what I read because people thought it was a little grisly. I didn't. I think maybe the thought of somebody's leg being impaled can be in having cut it off. <laughs> even though he knows he's going to die. But to me, it was not as grisly as it could have been. But also, one thing with cozies is, that's why You Bruce can never Coffin, kill an animal in a cozy. Well, I wouldn't kill an animal in a book anyway. Yeah. Spoiler. But Bruce Coffin, when he joked about being a cozy writer from Portland, it's because his wife didn't want all the fucks. Yeah. Because in cozies, you don't have bad language. Oh, yeah, they usually you don't. You don't have no. the word fuck. It seems like they don't have the F word, but I've heard... My fuck way up, like my first book. Well, what's maybe his three name? Or four. Well, you had that Tim Shaw second. guy. Yeah, I mean, people talk he that was, way. And especially people like, you know, who are yeah. in the standoff with cops. Yeah. You know, oh, I hope that wasn't a spoiler. Spoiler alert. If that were to happen. If that were to happen. If that were book. to happen. But one cool thing about Maine is I don't think you can classify the typical Maine mystery novel. There are no. many types. And, and I think people think cozy because they think Murder, She Wrote, yes. and Cabot Cove, and Lighthouses, and Lobsters, and... But... Maine is a big state, and there's a lot of different stuff going on. Well, they think of either that or they think of Stephen King and creepy things. Yeah. And Barb Ross, like some of the main crime writers, lives part of the year in Maine and part in, I think she lives in Massachusetts. But I, uh, no, I really did enjoy the book. Um, I have met her. and um, She's a very she's, nice woman. Yes. And I have to say she was very supportive of me when I started. When I first got published, she blurbed my first book. And she was very encouraging well, about my nice. writing before I got published. Yeah. And so she's... And I so like I to like meet... Her. I have another one um, that I haven't read yet. The one that had the corgis on the cover. But she I told know, me there's there no, no corgis, corgis in the book. book. A Royal Murder by Leslie... Something. Meyer. Meyer. And she was a very nice woman. Is everyone Everyone's nice. All the authors are very well, nice. That's another thing about Maine's mystery writing community. Although she's the, not from Maine, Leslie. Right. I don't know where in she's from. In fact, the mystery, as well. the mystery writing community in general, I found Every, very I found nice. that because I'm just like a hanger-on Yeah, type. you're a groupie. I'm, a, I'm your handler. Yeah. <laughs> and so I go to these things with you. And I find that everyone seems very supportive of each other and very nice. There isn't like competition and... There's I, no backbiting. No. And, and you know, but I found that with... I'm not around writers as I've much heard as the romance writers are very nasty to oh, each other. No, I'm serious. Aren't. I'm serious. I have a, a writing friend who was a member of the Romance Writers of America before she became a member of the Mystery Writers of America. I'm not going to say who she is because I don't want them coming to her house 
friend of New Hampshire, and she said the romance writers were very nasty. And one time she was huh. talking to somebody else, and the other person who had been a member agreed. So I'm wow, not, that's know. not nice. No, it's not because like like just with visual artists that I know, and I'm not. I'm not into the art scene like some artists. I, I'm kind of on the on the fringe, and sometimes I'll take part in stuff, but I don't I don't do it all the time. But the people I'm I've been around have always been very supportive of each other. I've never seen artists putting each other down or or, or you know. It seems like when people are creative, they enjoy. Other if they're a true, I think if you're very confident in your in your own creativity, you enjoy other people's creativity. I find, especially if they do something that's a lot different than you, uh, because you you can still appreciate it. To me, like when I see someone's art that's different than stuff I do, it's not like I think, ooh, I wouldn't do that. Why would anyone do that? I think, wow, that's amazing, and I could never do that. What and I, I think that's and what I feel a about lot of creative people. and I think it's true of the With art musicians community, too, and musicians, yeah. and I think it's also true of the mystery writing community is that there's not competition because readers don't only read they're not going to just read one well, book I know that's what or I always maybe thought some people funny. will but I wouldn't call somebody who read one book a reader <laughs> I know. so everybody's success makes the rest of us yes, successful and I feel that way with musicians too I always think it's funny when you read oh you know Rihanna and Beyonce have a feud or something and Everybody's I'm like listening why to their would music. they right. why would and I don't believe they do I don't believe that any of those singers have And a I have feud to say too well for instance while I prefer certain genres over others I don't it's not like I'm only going to read one type Yeah of I know book. I'll read it cozy I'll read I try to uh, mix up, but sometimes I do get stuck in a rut, and I'll read the same, like I'll read a bunch of true crime books in, in a row. If it's I, well written. Yeah. No, but I try. I still try to, like, sometimes I try to just switch things up. Well, I, I um, when I'm writing, I try to not read mysteries, yeah. but I went to the library yesterday and ended up getting caught up in the mystery section, mm. and I noticed they had all Denise Mina's books, and she's oh, one of my favorite yeah, writers. She's a Scottish books. writer. So I grabbed a couple yes. that I hadn't read yet. I turned you on to her. I was looking for The Stranger Beside Me, which they didn't have, but I got another Anne Rule book just because I like oh, true Anne crime. Rule. And I also, and here's an example, I'm not big on, as you know, the supernatural and that type of thing, but there was a book right next to Denise Mina's, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the author because I didn't think I'd be talking about it today, but the protagonist is a shaman, and she's mm. in England on the moors, and I'm like, okay, because I was very interested in the Moors because I was just listening to the Moors Murders three-part ah. series on Case File podcast. And, and if you ever read uh, The Secret Garden when you were little. Right. Well, that I did, and I loved that book. But also, Mom and I have now twice watched the Bronte's oh, thing on I Masterpiece Theater. So, and we were talking about the Moors mm-hmm. and stuff. So, so I got it because it had a Moore's photo on the front. I actually was a bigger fan of Jane Eyre than Wuthering Heights. Oh, me too. Jane Eyre was one, one of my, my favorite all-time books favorite of all books. time. Me too. Me too. So I got that book because of the Moore's, and I said, maybe I can find out some of the questions Mom and I were asking <laughs> each other about the Moore's, and I was too lazy to go on Wikipedia or whatever. to. I thought they were, like, in one place, but I guess they're all over yeah. England. So I got this mystery novel, and I'm actually enjoying it quite a bit, even though she's a shaman, and I'm not normally into... That type of thing. So it's all depending on, and I wish I could give her a plug. Well, you know, good writing is good writing. It's, uh, it is. It doesn't matter it about is. the genre. In fact, here's on the other side of the coin, after watching the Bronte special, it raised a lot of questions in my mind about the Brontes. And Mom has this very big, long Bronte book 
written by an English woman and <laughs> whose name I can't remember. And it's not the most, it's not poorly written, but it's not, you know, I love reading history by like David McCullough and Doris, Doris Kearns, Kearns Goodwin. Because yeah. it's like reading the novel. Life, they yeah. bring it to life. And this is more like bleh, plotting a little. Yeah. But I'm reading it because I want to find out more about the Brontes. But, of course, now I'm putting it aside because I have an Anne Rule true crime book and two mysteries to read. So. Well, I hope you're writing. <laughs> I know. That's what Mom always says. <laughs> I hope Mo's writing. Or Maureen. I'm writing. I hope Maureen Hopefully that book will be out by so, by sometime in September. September? I can't wait that long for Pete and Bernie. I want to know. know what's going on. Oh, oh, oh maybe you don't want to know. It's, oh, maybe I do. Yeah. In any case. Anyways, well, we've gone on. But, you know, so we'll probably bring more, every once in a while, have more main crime writers stuff on our podcast. And if they want to come on, we're going to have some of those guys. We're already going to have Jen Blood, I don't know when, talking about the Bennington Triangle. If anyone wants, if there's someone you have a hankering to hear us interview, you can always email us at. You can email us at crimeandstuff at gmail.com. Okay. And if you go on our website, Crime and Stuff Online, there's a contact sheet where you can fill it out and contact us. And okay. it goes to us. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'll do or that. Or you can even tweet at us at Crime and Stuff. Go on our yeah, Facebook. Send us a follow message. Follow us on Twitter. On our Facebook page, which people have done. Jo- yes, join our... It's not a group, I'm sorry. Like our page. Yeah, like our page. We Maybe someday group. we'd start a group. But I, uh, we just don't have time to... You can donate Patreon. Yes. And or PayPal donation. Or one PayPal time. donation. Patreon is not a one-time donation. It's a monthly, but a monthly. we have two lo- three levels. $2, $5, and a higher one. It could be a crime dog. Yeah. Or a crime buster, or, or a master, master criminal. criminal. We'd like to. We thank do have some, and donors. I think we'll, well, we haven't had a chance. It's been really busy, but besides having the donations, I think we'll have merch available to for if people for, want to for buy. people yeah. to buy. Yes, we just haven't had a chance. But to, we do have to, to the do donors. That, yeah. uh, donors our, are getting stuff. We have magnets. Yep. Our, our cool super donor stuff. fan Karen Alden. Of Oklahoma, just got, uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, her merch will have arrived. And I, and the reason I'm saying her is because she was our donor of the week a couple weeks ago, and I think I just said her first name and not her last name. If people don't want us to say their last name, they have to tell us. They have to tell us. And you can find us on iTunes and rate us and review us. please rate and review and subscribe. Right now. Subscribe, rate, review. Right. Especially, I think subscribing is the most important. It is, but rating and reviewing is important, too. It helps people... It, it and does help also people. tell your friends to listen to us yeah stuff if you like us and we'll be back next week this was a very Mo special we'll have something and I, yes week. i'm gonna have a crime next week what is it you'll just have to find out oh i'm so you. excited yes Okay. Well, I think Daisy, my cat, is disappointed that she couldn't be part yeah, of our podcast. Yeah, that was a one-time thing. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, okay. And so we'll see you next week. Okay, bye. bye. The Noir at the Bar. Uh, what the fuck? Event. Event. If you go to mainCrimeWriters.com. Fuck. And I want to say it was... Why can't we remember what that was called? Oh, my God. Ah, jeez. It was called... I, we have to say it. I, I have to cut this out, but we have to say it because I'm going to sound like a fucking ignoramus. I love I want. I want to say monkey business, but I know that's not no, what it was called. No, but it was something... Oh, God. Uh, Richard Russo I can never picture. Gonna, I can picture the...
Yeah, lucky you can cut this out. I can picture the cover. I know, I can too. And I read and it twice. I listened to it on audio. I had read it and then Rousseau. I listened to the audio. Richard Rousseau books. Come on. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Straight Man. Straight Man. Okay. So, yeah, Straight Man. I love that book. And I'm reading now. I don't know. I can't remember the name of the book, but she's not a, she's not from Maine. She's from Massachusetts. The one that writes about the clam bake murders. Barb Ross. That's not the one I'm reading right, right now. The one I'm reading right now is she's a Shaker midwife. I mean a Quaker midwife in um, New and um, uh, not Newburyport. Um, Shaker Quaker. Oh God! It's something the truth. Not Barb Ross. I'm going to talk about Barb Ross. Oh, I'm, who are you talking about? I don't know her name. She was at Crime Bake, and she has silver hair. Look, look up, look up Quaker Mystery, Massachusetts. What would we ever do without smartphones and Google? Oh, Delivering the Truth. That's the one. Oh, that's the first one of hers? Okay. So that's the one I'm reading now. I, what, Say it like we didn't uh, okay. just have that whole thing going on. Yes. Of... God damn it. What the fuck is the name of the town? Do you want to look it up? I, I, my battery's almost dead. Okay, well, I'll look it up, okay? Hang on. Fogden. Wow, there's a lot of Fogden. It's I-N-N. Fog? Oh, duh. Barbara Ross. Thank God for editing. I know. What is it? Crime Writers Podcast? At no, we're not the Crime Writers. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's that other podcast. <laughs> Just uh, ignore it. <laughs> well, that will. You better cut that one off.